Thanks, Josh. Let's turn together, please, to Acts chapter 9. Our passage today is one of those that I think we can say without any reservation, without any concocting to make you listen better, that it's one of the most important ones in all of the Bible, and I want to try to establish that today. So this is one we should listen to. Someone said a long time ago, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul wrote that a long time ago. And Paul wrote that not just because he didn't understand life, because he was a confused theologian, or perhaps because he was an erudite theologian who was trying to convince the world around him just how smart he was and how bad they were. Paul wrote this in an autobiographical sense. When Paul talks about people whose mouths are full of curses and bitterness, whose feet are swift to shed blood, and in whose paths there is a characteristic of ruin and misery, he knew what he was talking about because that was Paul. But there is a great hinge in this passage, which we are reading today from Romans chapter 3. And that is that this is not the way it has to be, that this is the very purpose for which Christ came. God is justifiably angry due to the sin of humanity. But He decided in His great mercy that He would punish His own Son so that we who trust Him might be justified. The truth of the matter is, he has to be the one who initiates this, because according to Paul, again, who speaks autobiographically, looking back 
upon his own story. This is the way it works. No one will come to God of their own accord. And Paul's story, which is more than just a record on a page, this is theological exultation, E-X-U-L-T, to, to take joy in something, to take great pleasure in something. And that is the way good theology is always done. And herein lies a bit of a warning for us. If we are just fascinated cognitively with theology and share it so that others might know how impressive our intellect is, we don't know anything. This is what Paul warns about later in 1 Corinthians 13. I can speak with the tongues of angels, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. I am more like a clanging gong or cymbal. When Paul wrote this theological treatise, this that I have just read to you, he spoke it with theological exultation. He was exulting in what Christ had done for him. Well, why? Well, that's what our passage proclaims to us today in Acts chapter 9. We have been out of the book of Acts for the past several weeks, for we have been discussing together the theology of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, not just so we will understand Him better, again, cognitive apprehension, but so that we will love Him more and know how we might worship our God in the way that He intends. But where have we been in the book of Acts as we look back to the past several months? Well, of course, Jesus has died and has risen from the grave. We will be celebrating this shortly as we approach Resurrection Sunday. After His resurrection, He spent some time with His disciples, teaching them, preparing them for His departure and the mission that He had for them after He went away. They were to be His witnesses. The sovereign Lord of heaven the one who rescues sinners from their rebellion, uses the proclamation of his people to bring people to faith. Faith comes by hearing, Paul will later say in Romans chapter 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. This will be the mission of the apostles. No one will be saved apart from hearing and believing the gospel. And then he does. He goes away. But He keeps His promise to them that He made to them in the book of John. He sends them the Comforter who powerfully is poured out upon them in Acts chapter 2, undoing the effects of the curse that go all the way back to Babel in the book of Genesis. For now, rather than confounding the languages of the people and driving them apart and away from Himself, He gives them the ability to hear the good news of salvation in their own tongues miraculously to bring them back together, to show that His redemption is going to be more than just to His covenant people, who in themselves were an incredibly rebellious people. The salvation of the Jews alone would have been a miracle. But the salvation is going to be for all peoples everywhere. Jesus told them this in Acts chapter 1. You're going to stay for a while in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the world. But if the book of Luke, as we have established, was the beginning of all that Jesus began to do, the book of Acts is all that He continues to do. For though He gave His disciples 
the charge to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the world, he is orchestrating all these things behind the scenes. For the first several chapters of the book of Acts, up through chapter 7, are the gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem and the surrounding region of Judea. But through persecution, a very evil act, the stoning of Stephen, his faithful witness, a persecution arises more largely against the church, and the gospel begins to spread. In chapter 8, to Samaria, just as Jesus had commanded them. And interestingly, and ironically, the one who was responsible for the, for the beginning of this persecution, the catalyst of it, was a man named Saul. A Jewish theological expert. But more than that, he was sort of like a, a secret police as well. Think back to the German state in World War II. They weren't just seeking to teach ideology. They were seeking to enforce it. That was Paul's job. He was an enforcer. He was a hammer. And of all the people that have been introduced to us so far in the book of Acts, from an evil point of view, Paul is the chief among them. So God uses Paul to Make sure that the gospel begins to go into Samaria, where he is complicit in the murder of Stephen. But he has bigger plans for Paul. He uses Paul's evil to bring about his salvation purposes for the Samaritans. But now in chapter 9, he does more. Let's read together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, we just read in Romans chapter 3, a mouth full of cursing and bitterness, the venom of asps in their lips. This is Paul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, let's just pause there for a minute, because that was a mouthful that Luke gave us, and let's just marinate in in the nastiness of that for a minute. Paul is not just charged with being the hammer. He has bloodlust. He wants to shed as much blood as he can. He is completely thrilled that in his path there will be ruin and misery all around him. And he does it This bloodlust, he does it from a sense of self-righteousness. He thinks he is serving God, and this drives him. But it's not the Spirit of God, it's his own pride. And he's not just going to kill men, he's going to kill women too. You know when you watch a news report these days, if a few guys die, people aren't that upset, but if women and children die, the perpetrator is super evil. Luke does not let Paul off the hook in any way whatsoever. Now, Luke later became a traveling companion of Paul. He got the story from Paul. Paul told it this way. What was I like? I had bloodlust, and I killed everybody in my way. Now, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, 
and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. I call Jesus is sort of subtle here, right? For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the holy word of our God. It probably would not be a stretch to say that of all the men born of women, Paul is one of the most important men that has ever lived. Jesus, obviously, is number one, and without peer, he is the firstborn, first in rank in every way. But as you think through human history, if you are somewhat a student of human history, who has ever been born that has been more critical to the course of human history, and from our point of view as Christians, the redemption of lost humanity back to their creator than Paul? The 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament contain much of our understanding of how the work of Jesus, the gospel, applies to us, both initially in conversion, our salvation, and then in our transformation. We, most of us Gentiles, some of you may have a little bit of Jewish blood in you. If you did some like Ancestry.com or DNA testing, you might find that and be amazed. Most of us are just plain old boring Gentiles. We would not be here today if it weren't for this guy. So his story and the story of his conversion are of ultimate importance in God's plan for human history. And if human history is about the drama of God's redemption unfolding, and and I would argue that it is, the point of human history is that God would put His gracious love on display. That's why he made the world. He knew full well that it would go headlong into sin. And he had a purpose to rescue lost sinners before he fashioned anything. That's the only way to explain why he did it. 
the angels understood God's holiness to a degree, his majesty, his righteousness, perhaps even his justice. Peter will later say in his first epistle that the angels, however, long to look into the redemption of lost humanity. They can theorize about it, but they can't feel it. What's human history about? God making grace more than theoretical. Making lost image bearers, lost and ruined by the fall, feel it and know it and restore them to full joy and worship. Paul is integral in that dramatic story. The first thing we find from this passage is that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. No one, including you and including me, is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. When I was growing up, I used to hear that the reason that Paul could be so faithful, Jesus even tells Ananias that Paul is going to suffer. Now, Ananias is scared of Paul, right? And by the way, I should probably clear this up just as a parenthesis. Saul of Tarsus did not get a new name when he became a Christian. Okay? Some people think that. Saul was his, his Hebrew name. He was a Benjamite named after the first king of Israel, King Saul. But he had a, a Greek name as well, for he lived and moved in Greek culture. He had been raised up in Tarsus and been taught both Hebrew theology, but had a Greek and cultured setting around him. So he had a name for his Hebrew setting and a name for his Greek setting. And later on, because he's primarily going to minister in a Greek and cultured setting among the Gentiles, he goes by the name Paul. So parenthesis closed. So Ananias is scared of Saul of Tarsus, the man we more commonly know as Paul. And Jesus tells Ananias, who is already scared about going to meet this guy, you're going to have to give him some bad news. Now the good news is he's been rescued from his sin. But the bad news is this is going to cost him everything. And we know from human history that this actually did happen to Paul. Legend tells us that he was beheaded. He had his head lopped off for the sake of the gospel. Ananias was right. But we look at a guy like Paul and we say, how could, how could he do such a thing? As you read the book of 2 Corinthians, you hear Paul talk about his life. It wasn't super rosy. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was left at sea. He was let down over the walls of a city in a basket, as we will find soon in Acts chapter 9. He was persecuted. He was hated. He was stoned and left for dead. Christianity, coming to Jesus and saving faith, often does not make our life easier. Can I get an amen on that one? And Paul knew this. I've heard it said that the reason that he was willing to undergo such things is that he never got over his salvation. You ever heard that thrown around? Like that's one of those evangelical cliches we just kind of have rolling off our lips. I never really understood that because there were a lot of days that I wasn't willing to undergo any sort of persecution and was really over my salvation in lots of ways. As I've gotten older, I think I understand what people mean by that, but, but I would put a twist on that. 
two more times in the book of Acts, and likely many, many more times, Paul gave his, what we call, another evangelical cliche, his testimony, the record of his own conversion. Why was it, just a grant for a minute, that maybe Paul never got over his salvation? Why was it that that was the case? How did that come to pass? I think it's because he fostered this. He, he nurtured it. He made it the most important thing that he meditated upon, and it drove his mission. We will talk about mission as we move through the passage this morning, but I want to fundamentally say here at this point that Luke heard this story from Paul, and probably everybody who knew Paul heard the story. In fact, Paul's story becomes a critical component in the expansion of the gospel. We must nurture our faith in Jesus every single day. And that will help us. We prayed earlier in our prayer of repentance and assurance about our pride. The minute that you think that you are past your struggle with pride, what have you just done? You have violated the very thing that you are seeking to avoid. We are shot through with pride, self-dependence, self-righteousness, self-exaltation. How do we fight such sin? And not just pride, but so many other things. Well, we must understand what we have been given in Christ. And we must understand who we were. I think for a lot of us who grew up in evangelical settings where our moms and dad taught us our first song and it was Jesus Loves Me. It's a great song still, by the way. We don't believe it, but we sing it. And we were taught the Bible. You learned a lot of verses. Those of us who have been Christians a long time, we all know them in the Elizabethan English, right? Because we learned it from the King James. Like, like we grew up at our mom's knee and we were taught the Bible. We went to Sunday school and all these things. We hear people say, you know, you were really bad. We were really bad. And, and it's amazing that Jesus said this. But we don't really feel that as we should. Paul knew this. And he wrote Romans 3, which we just read together a bit ago, to remind us and teach us who we were and what we deserved. We deserve the wrath of God, but that's the wonder of the gospel is that he sent Jesus to bear his own wrath. As you're reading through Luke's narrative here in the book of Acts, and you see just how evil Saul of Tarsus was, complicit in Stephen's murder, This man full of bloodlust, not just fulfilling his responsibility from the Sanhedrin, the council of Jews, but asking them for permission to go do more, to kill as many people as he could. It's a convincing story that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. Some of you were converted as adults, and you feel this better perhaps than some of us who came to faith and repentance when we were kids. But I think that one of the things that Jesus does in His grace is He shows us while He transforms us after our conversion that if we were left unharnessed, we would become unhinged. For even after conversion, we still struggle with most of the same sins, right? Pride, lust, 
disobedience to authorities. That, that should touch you kids. Anger, ego, and the list goes on and on. We still struggle with these things even after the Spirit indwells us post-conversion. But what if those sins were left unchecked? We would become unhinged. We would derail. We would implode. Paul is a beautiful, amazing example of what God does. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. That's you and me too. We did not come into God's family because we had a heritage of faith. We didn't get grandfathered in. Each sin must be conquered individually, and Jesus did that and made you his own. We sang a song just a few moments ago, His Mercy is More. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, His mercy are more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam, what Father so tender is calling us home, He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. That's you and that's me. And the wonder of Jesus' love is that no one is beyond the reach of His grace. This has implications not only for our own enjoyment of the gospel, but also for the way that we look at the world around us. So I say to you moms and dads who are awaiting the conversion of your children, your child is not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. This is especially poignant for those of you who might have adult children who are not walking with Christ. Your neighbor, who seems to be anything but a lover of God, who loves himself or herself clearly far too much. Your neighbor is not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. The pagan in faraway lands who hates the thought that Jesus is the Son of God and is the only way back to God, that pagan is not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. Your mom and your dad, perhaps you did not grow up in a Christian home, who rejects outright the notion that they are in need of salvation, that that is odious, horrible to them, they are not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. Your boss isn't. Your friends aren't. No one is. And herein lies the importance of being able to understand your own story and articulate it well. One of Paul's greatest evangelistic tools was just telling his story. Now, he understood his story well. And here's what I mean. He knew who God was, and eventually, after his conversion, he understood who he was. And then he understood what Jesus had done. And then he just told people 
And, and Paul, Saul of Tarsus, his story is so compelling because of who he was. Now, we don't have an exact chronology of the time lapse between chapters 8 and 9, but it must not have been too long. Let's just say it was weeks. Weeks before, he's standing with his bloodlust, fire in his eyes, the venom of asps on his lips, calling out for the murder of this follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And then incensed in his anger that anyone would dare call Jesus the Son of God, he's on his way to Damascus, papers in hand, legally able to go and bring more to prison so they could be killed as well. And then Jesus appears and he calls out. And I wonder the tone Jesus used. We have this notion that any voice from heaven must have been booming, like echoing, right? I won't even try to do that today. I don't know, maybe. Was there a tone of irritation in Jesus' voice? Maybe. Could it have been a merciful whisper? I assume it could have been that too. I don't know. But he doesn't let Saul off the hook. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, whatever the tone of the voice was, the light was blinding. This was clearly God speaking. And and Saul knew this because of how he responds to him. Who are you, Lord? Now, as a good Hebrew, as a person who knew the law backwards and forwards, He wouldn't have called anybody Lord unless he believed it was the Lord. And and just to be clear, Luke got this story from Paul, so, so we know that's the case. Who answers? What does the Lord say? I am Jesus. That had to have been pretty shocking for him, right? This one that he had given his life over to to persecute, and all of his followers now calls out from his heavenly throne, exalted after his work of redemption, and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You think you're persecuting my followers. You're really persecuting me. But now you must do something. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And everybody around him is amazed. He can't see anything, and he's so distraught that he can't eat or drink. The story of Saul of Tarsus' conversion is one that clearly teaches us that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. He came after Saul because he loved him. Turn with me, please, to Galatians chapter 1. Verse 11 Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Paul was on a trajectory of glory. Nothing would have been spared him. He would have had all he ever wanted. 
but verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born, which matches with Jesus' sovereign salvation in Acts 9. This was Jesus' intention for Saul of Tarsus all along. And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles and not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then later in verse 21, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy And what's the result? Verse 24. The purpose of everyone's salvation. They glorified God because of me. And then in Philippians 3. Paul loved to talk about a story. Here's what else he has to say. Finally, my brothers, Philippians 3.1. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He tells them to look out for the dogs and the evildoers. Then he talks about his resume. If salvation comes by self-righteousness, Paul was peerless. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. From a legal point of view, he was peerless. But whatever gain, verse 7, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, just like Ananias told him it would be, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what drove him before legal observance, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then verse 12 is so powerful. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I was seeking to establish my own righteousness, and that was leading me down the path of death. But what did Jesus do on the road to Damascus when Paul was going to go kill more of his followers? He arrests his hurtling toward damnation and turns him to the path of salvation. Jesus Christ made him his own, this one who had set him apart before his mother's, in his mother's womb before he was ever born. This was Jesus' intention, to rescue Paul. And and so I say to you today, you are here today, not because you are good, but because Jesus is. A Puritan named Richard Sibbs, some of you may have read Sibbs in the past, said back in the middle of the 17th century that there is more mercy in Christ, then there is sin in us. If you have not yet turned to Jesus because you see the darkness within and think that you are beyond the reach, you are not. There is more mercy in Jesus than sin in you. 
if you are his today and you are struggling with your pride and your secret lust and your ego and your avarice and your materialism and a lot of other things, there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in you. And it doesn't just tip the scales by a degree. It's like comparing an ocean to a thimble. Jesus' light is greater than our darkness. His mercy is greater than our sin. And no one, including you or me, is beyond the reach of his gracious love. The second thing this passage teaches us is that Jesus has rescued us that we might testify to his powerful, gracious love. If the first thing that Acts 9 teaches us is that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love, the second thing this passage teaches us is the design of this, the purpose of this. Jesus has rescued us that we might testify to his powerful, gracious love. That's Jesus' message to Ananias. Go to this bloodthirsty, murderous man and tell him what he's going to do. And he does. Look with me, please, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again, Paul loved to talk about his story. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. There's that word again. I received mercy from Jesus because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed. That contrast between ocean and thimble. It overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. doesn't say I was, I am. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then what's His response, verse 17? To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was amazed at the grace of God shown to him in Christ. He did not run away from who he had been or who he was, and he believed fundamentally what Sibs said later in the 17th century, that there was more mercy in Jesus than sin in him. And that message he took to the nations. This was Jesus' intention from the very beginning. That the gospel would not just be a regional religion. It wouldn't just be for the covenant people, the Jews. It would be for all peoples everywhere. Turn with me please to Psalm 67. One of the things that I hope that we can come away with as we study Acts chapter 9 today is that this is part of God's big story. This wasn't just happenstance. Jesus didn't 
go back to heaven to be with the Father after his ascension and say, I've got a really good idea. Let's save other people too, not just the covenant people. And let's create a dramatic story so they will believe. This, this was always God's intention. Paul's made that clear that, that he had been set apart in his mother's womb. He had been set apart by Jesus, as we will later learn in Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the world. Why? Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Now, we don't exactly know what that Selah word means. I know a Christian contemporary group years ago picked it up as their name, so that's great. But it probably means something like pause or reflect. Let's reflect for a moment. This, this blessing of verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is the blessing that, that God told Moses to place upon the covenant people in Numbers chapter 6. This blessing that is repeated here in Psalm 67.1 was known by Israel to be their blessing, right? This is the family blessing. But notice what the psalmist is saying. This is really, really important in God's story of redemption. This blessing would not just be for God's covenant people. Who would it be for? The nations, the peoples. And what would be the result, verse 4? The nations would be glad. In verse 5, what would be the result? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us, all of us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This means that anyone who will trust Jesus and stop depending upon their own righteousness and turn to him in faith and repentance, that they may be saved. bloodthirsty Jews, self-righteous Jews, self-righteous Gentiles from Ohio, Gulf Arabs who are hearing the gospel because you are sacrificing your money that the gospel may be heard there. Kenyans who are confused with false gospels at every turn, who are hearing the clear call of the gospel because you are sacrificing your money and your efforts to make it known. The nations are being made glad because of Christ and because he's making us glad, and then our passion is to make others glad. That's why Paul was willing to do this. He was willing to suffer For God's face had shone upon him. Literally, right? Jesus shone down into Paul's darkness and gave him the light of salvation. And what did Paul do the rest of his life? He realized that he had been rescued for the purpose of testifying to this powerful and gracious love. 
So Acts chapter 9 is critically important in the unfolding of God's dramatic story of redemption, but it's incredibly instructive for us that we will remember who we were, that Jesus saved us, and that we will believe that no one, no one anywhere is beyond the reach of His gracious love, and that we will take this story, the story of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, and take it to the nations. That begins in your backyard or in your own family room, and it extends in concentric circles all over the world. If we understand what it is that Jesus has done for us and what he will do for peoples all over the place, we will join him in this mission. Might it cost us? It did cost Paul, did it not? It'll at least cost you your prayers. It'll probably cost you some money. Some of you might have some skin in the game. In fact, all of us must to a degree, for if we proclaim with our lips and display with our lives the transformative love of Jesus and the gospel, we are going to face opposition. We, we, we will. And if we never do, we should be calling into question if we're actually obeying Him and following Him. Others might have more skin in the game. It, it could be your kid or your grandchild who, like Paul, will be amazed at what Christ had done for him and will see themselves as the, as the foremost of sinners and they will see other sinners who need the good news and take it to them. So as profound as this passage is, these two simple truths must stick with us. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love and those of us who've been reached by this gracious love must testify to his powerful gracious love that others may believe. So how will you respond to this? Let's pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to do that in our hearts. Spirit, our helper, left by Jesus, our Savior, to give us life and hope, I pray now that you would take these words, these words from the Scriptures, and that you would convince our minds that we would believe and understand and convince our hearts that we would feel and desire. Thank you for rescuing us from our rebellion. We who were swift to shed blood and whose paths were the characteristics of ruin and misery. We who never would have sought for you, thank you for coming down and seeking us and making us your own. We would be damned apart from Jesus, but you have not left us to ourselves. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us life. And Jesus, thank you for laying down your life and calling down to us and making us your own. And then I pray that we would be so overwhelmed with this as we nurture this, this truth, this truth that we who were heading headlong into ruin and misery, have been rescued. And may we take this wonderful news and proclaim it to the nations that they may be glad as well. May that begin here in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. And then may we sacrifice all that is necessary to make sure that this good news is made known here and around the world. Jesus, do this, we pray, for your glory. Do this for the joy of many who have not yet come and do this for our joy, we who get to participate 
in this worldwide mission of redemption, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.